Hi, I'm Nina Starner. And I'm Abraham Josephine Reisman, although you can call me Josie. And this is One of the Girls, a podcast about girlhood, pop culture, and the intersection between the two. And today we are talking about, I guess, how do we frame it? Uh, we were initially going to be talking about Lost in Translation, which I think will mm-hmm. still be the the film, I should say. Yes. Uh, that shall probably be the bulk of what we're talking about, but we're going to use it as a jumping off point for a larger discussion about Sofia Coppola, the writer and director of yes. Lost in Translation and many other films that have been very interesting and influential for millennial girls. And... Um, I'm looking forward to this chat. What couple of movies have you seen, Nina? Let's just let's just get like the cards yeah. on the table about how cultural illiterate we are. <laughs> I have not seen The Godfather she was in that everybody hated. I'll say that. Um. Uh, I have seen The Godfather <laughs> Part 3. That's true. Thank you. I was like, which part is it? Um, yeah. It's Part 3. I need, I need one of the Kens to explain it to me really quickly. Um, to bring it back to Barbie. Uh, oh, I've geez. seen, yeah, I've seen Virgin Suicides um, and my dog... Lux is actually named after Lux Lisbon because I am very fun at parties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen the movie. I've read the book. Um, I rewatched the movie to prepare for this. And I definitely have some thoughts, especially because I think that what Coppola did with the adaptation is so interesting because, and we'll get to that. And then I've seen yeah. uh, Lost in Translation. I've seen Marie Antoinette, which I also rewatched in preparation for this. I have not seen Somewhere, which is the one with Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning and Stephen Dorff. Stephen Dorff, that's yeah. it. Well, I'll get to yeah. what I've seen in a second, but keep going. And I think, did she, I believe she did one with Bill Murray and Rashida Jones called On the Rocks oh, semi-recently. Yeah. And I yeah, have I not see that one. seen did that. Did you see the, bling? Have, did you the, see the bling Ring? I have seen Bling Ring. That's, I was like, which ones am I forgetting? I yeah, saw Bling, bling Ring, Ring in theaters, I believe. Me too. Ago. I saw it on like yeah. opening night. I, I yeah. yeah, I remember being excited about that one because it was like right at the tail end or right after Harry Potter. So I was still like, all about Emma Watson at the Emma time. Emma Watson. So she's very good really, at it. But anyway, She's go on, really yes. good. Um, and I've not seen, which I really want to see, and I I meant to watch it in advance of this podcast, but didn't get a chance, and I'm going to get to it. Have not okay, seen okay. The Beguiled. The Beguiled? Oh, I didn't see that either, no. Yeah, because it's, it's a remake, which I think is not, I think that's the only one that Coppola's done as a remake. Yeah, she's and done adaptations, Nicole, but not remakes. Yeah. yeah, and it's Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman, and I... I want to say Elle Fanning's in that too. Kirsten Dunst def- is definitely in it because she's just a staple of Coppola's work. Right. Kiki, you can't go wrong with putting her Love in me it. some Kiki Dunst. But so what about you, Josie? Which uh, yeah, Coppola films so I, have you seen and which I, do you connect with? Yeah. So I saw Lost in Translation uh, memorably uh, on DVD with my mother in 2004. Okay. And I look forward to discussing that. But mm-hmm. in the interest of the rundown, um, I saw the Bling Ring in theaters uh, somewhere. I saw in theaters bizarrely. Cool. Um, you know, I that was during a time when I was living in New York and thought I was. You know what? I shouldn't say I thought I was a cool person. I actually was a cool person doing the cool thing that you do when you're in a city that has good art house theaters, which is you see the movies. Yeah. That if you're living in any other city that's not New York or L.A. Because you, you get the limited see. releases, right? Yeah, limited like, releases. You can go see them on the big screen. And there was this period exactly. when I didn't have much uh, extracurricular work. I was kind of doing a nine to five and mm-hmm. feeling pretty miserable about myself a lot of the time. So I saw a lot of movies in art house yeah. theaters. Yeah. And Somewhere was one of them and was a great one to watch when I was very depressed because it's about Stephen Dorff being very depressed. And He's reconnecting with his daughter, right? That's yeah, Elle Fanning. Yeah. It's, it's a really yeah. beautiful movie. 
I definitely um, want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not worth doing an episode on because nobody saw it. <laughs> it was like not a big hit on the scale of some of these other well, ones. I love Elle Fanning because I, I need to catch up on it because I didn't finish it, but she's amazing on The Great, which is a show that's really frustrating oh, to write about. Oh, yeah. She was good on that. Sim- saying yeah, similar to Marie great Antoinette. On the great. Yeah. <laughs> but, ah, ah, there you um, go. Yeah. Yeah. But fantastic on that show. Love love her on that. So I do want to revisit somewhere. So you saw that. She's also, a very talented. Rule. Support your local theaters do rule. Don't, yeah. don't destroy them. But, um, uh, you know, I've seen a bunch of them, not all of them, but mm-hmm. I I have to say the one that resonates most with me to this day is Lost in Translation, which was, yeah. um, you know, very early for her. But 2004, uh, I want to say. It came out in 03. Yeah. I saw it in 04. Oh, okay. It came out in 03. And won a bunch. It won a bunch of awards in 04, oh, which is why it feels. Oh, she won the Oscar in 04. Right, she okay. won the Oscar, yeah, Oscar yeah, yeah. in 04, which is why That's it sort of it. feels like an 04 movie. Yeah. Um. But I I saw it on DVD, like I said, with my mom, months after it came out. Um. I don't remember having much interest in seeing it in theaters. My guess mm-hmm. is my mom wanted to watch it, and I was going to college relatively shortly after that. It was the spring of my senior year. So my mom was doing a fair amount of like wanting to do family time stuff, which was yeah. totally understandable. So yeah. we watched movies and we watched that one. And the reason it's memorable was I'm not going to blow up my mom's spot. And luckily I don't remember <laughs> enough to totally blow it up. But she told me, you know, the setup for those who haven't watched Lost in Translation is it's about mm-hmm. this sort of fleeting friendship that verges on the romantic, but isn't really between yeah. Scarlett Johansson's character, who's a newly graduated college student, and Bill Murray's character, who's an established actor uh, on the down, sort of downward slope of his career, um, and and they're both they married, the- but like they their relationships are clearly kind of like her husband, um, played by Giovanni Giovanni Ribisi, yes. is a photographer, so he's like never really around, and she's on her own in Tokyo, and. I, we never see Bill Murray's on-screen wife, but she's just constantly faxing him about like wallpaper and carpeting. Yeah, for their just house. boring like, stuff. Just nonsense. Like that's yeah. not his. And like, yeah, and he right. doesn't care. And, and he, right, and it's 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 interesting in that way because both of those marriages are not portrayed as like, look at my demonic spouse who's just terrible, right. and I deserve better. Both of their spouses are like fine. They don't seem like bad people. They're just you know, sort like, of... I think the mundanity of it all, right? Just the isolation and the right. just this... For him, I think it's just they've been together so long. For her, it's like she's this younger woman, really... Who got of, married young and... Yeah, and trapped in a city she doesn't know. She doesn't speak the language. She's she's isolated. Right, and she's, she's surrounded by vapid Hollywood types, you know, that's sort great of the thing. It's like they're at the Park Hyatt. Yeah. Great turn for Anna Ferris, yes. Yeah. But they're they're fantastic. staying at the Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo. Uh and mm-hmm. there's, you know, because it's a popular spot for American expats and people who are happening to or, you know, not expats, but people who are from America or touring or doing a press event or whatever, you have all these sort of like people around who are kind of phony, right? You know, yeah. that's that's yeah. that's part of the problem for ScarJo's character is she's Yale-educated. That's canonical. Mm-hmm. She just graduated from Yale. And she's somewhat amused, but more or less just turned off by the vapidity of, right. you know, Anna Ferris plays this actress who knows the photographer husband and they run into each other. And it's sort of, co- the Anna Ferris character 
is saved by the fact that Anna Ferris is such a brilliant performer. I know, um, but it is a bit of just sort of co- right. so charming. Yeah, <laughs> she makes it very charming, but it is at its core a bit of a bitter finger given to um, you know certain kinds of Hollywood starlets. Well, do you right? know the rumor? About who that's based. Oh, I see. I I was trying to remember. I used to know the rumor, but who's it's Cameron Diaz? Cameron D. That's it. Yeah, and uh, people have speculated that the uh, Giovanni Ribisi's character is Spike Spike Jones, Jones. to whom Coppola was married. Right, Um, she was married to Coppola uh, to to Jones, uh, and that reminds me of my my favorite Sofia Coppola performance, uh, which is not The Godfather Part Three, but rather the uh, music video for the Chemical Brothers' Electro Bank. I don't know if any mm-hmm. of you have seen that, but she plays a gymnast doing this bizarre routine. And I don't know how much of it, Spike Jones directed it, I should say. Right, um, right. And she's amazing in it. She has no lines. It's just, That's you're, awesome. you're seeing her face as this like Olympic level gymnast and she's right. so good. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, she was married to Spike Jones, and you can see, even if it's not a direct analog for Jones, it's yeah. that kind of guy, you know? <laughs> like, in he's demand. cool, yeah, he's in cool. demand, he's hip. It's a very, yeah. like, early aughts, early aughts kind of guy, yes. you know? Like, it's there very- were a lot of dudes <laughs> who were making it in Hollywood at that time who were like, yeah, I was a Gen X skateboarder, but now I'm a director, well, you know? in many ways, this is a period piece, at, even now, even oh, yeah. 20 years removed, because, like, I, the low-slung jeans, even though those are making a comeback, which <laughs> makes me want to eat glass, but, like... The fashion, just the vibe of the entire movie feels so early aughts. So it, like, in it, down the road, this is going to be, I think. Oh, this will be piece. like a little slice. Yeah. Of, well, that's the thing. Yeah. Is like it, it, the movie got a lot of heat mm. at the time and continues to at a low buzz uh, for its portrayal of Japanese people, Japanese culture. Right? Yes. Like it's very much about the fact that they are fishes out of water. But in this rewatching I did, and I hadn't watched it in 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. I, I hadn't realized it was 20 until you just said it, but I guess that's exactly right. I didn't yeah. watch it in 19 years because I had enough for, but, you know, it came out right. 20 years ago. Um, I this time was struck by how much it's a movie about America and Hollywood that just mm-hmm. sort of happens to be set in Tokyo not happens to be that's still a big right. part of it but the 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 stuff that is interesting that it has to say about a culture a civilization is interesting stuff about Hollywood and America there's right. nothing interesting that it says about Japan like it, it's not even all that interested in how Japan works or no. what the Japanese characters think that's not no. the point of the movie and I can see why that would be offensive you know it's it's hard for me to make that judgment because I'm not Asian. It's not. I'm not Japanese. I'm not really. I don't feel no, comfortable. I, I agree passing with you. I don't think way, it's. But. I don't think Coppola set out to make a sort of statement about. No, I think about it Japan, could have been set in any country where yes. people don't speak the like visitors do not speak the language and feel isolated. I, I don't correct. Think it could have the been country Kuala necessarily Lumpur. mattered. Yeah, yeah. It could have been anywhere. Um, that's a very good point. Because the point is, what they're doing is, in this alien kind of sterile hotel environment, Mm -hmm. recreating American social mores and American status distinctions and American arguments. They're having them in this little bubble within Tokyo. 
Well, there's another aspect of this movie that is still a bit controversial that I want to bring into it, especially because it does, this touches Do more tell. on kind yes. of the girlhood of it all, which is the age difference between Bob, Bill Murray's character, and Charlotte, Scarlett Johansson's character. When they filmed this movie, Scarlett Johansson was 17 and Bill Murray was in his 50s. She was only, se- that's right, she's my age, I forgot. She is. I she always forget a, she's a my baby. age because I saw that. I forget mm. she's my age because I saw this movie and she was playing a recent college graduate and yeah. I, I mapped onto her that that's how old she was. Yeah. But she was almost exactly my age. That's she's right. Also been, she's been acting longer than I think people necessarily remember. Yes. Like she's been acting since she was a kid. Um, she was so in she Ghost was World in 2001. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and she was in some movie I remember seeing as a kid and the name will probably come to me the second we stop recording. But it was like about... I think it might have been Fly Away Home or that was Anna Pack, but I might be confusing the two. Doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, um, she was, she she was, was 17. of recent, she'd been acting yeah. for a while, but mm. she was of recent vintage in humanity. Yeah. I mean, she was pretty young, yes. Right. But they don't have sex. No. Nothing, nothing but, sexual or untoward happens. With but them. it is, you know, it's a strong indicator of like, <laughs> I mean, this is an argument that we've been having about Hollywood for years, right? Like how it's always like a 50-something man and a 20-something woman paired right. up as romantic interest. Or like Emmy Rossum is going to be playing Tom Holland's mother soon. She's like 10 years older than him. And it's just like the way that we... But the other thing that yes. I wanted to talk about, and I wanted to bring this back to like... Wait, wait, wait. Don't go... No, know, no, don't change that oh, yet. Because I wanted to okay. say what I was going to say. Yeah, I remember okay. that I, I left I left everybody hanging. I watched it with my mom. Oh, And yes. what my mom told me after we were done was she loved it and that it had been very true to life for her because oh. she had had a brief non-sexual um, relationship. I say relationship again with like a lowercase r with yeah. a, a man where they had about that age difference. I can't remember whether it was whether oh. she was in college. Wow, she, okay. Yeah, she had, she had briefly had this intense the non-sexual connection. but very powerful connection with an older man when she was uh, either a late teen or early twenty something, I can I, I I should ask her about this, but uh, I'm, I do, I purposely didn't before this because then I might accidentally spill beans. She didn't want me to. Yeah, I get that. I feel like this <laughs> amount of information is perfectly appropriate. Like it was, yeah. Be, yeah. But like she, it was a very it was a very important moment for me in my relationship with my mom. We were having a lot mm. of trouble at the time because. There was separation anxiety about me going off to college. Yeah. There was post-divorce Michigas that was still happening. Um, That's always a weird time right before you leave for college. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's always odd. a weird. Yeah, yeah, yes. But um, I always think of that scene from Boyhood where um, mm, Patricia Arquette's mm-hmm. like saying to her son who's about to leave, "When am I going to see you next at your funeral?" Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it feels so final, right? And it's like it's not. I know, like, I you'll, know. You'll it's be home like, like for Jesus Thanksgiving, Christ. right? No, no, no. <laughs> But anyway, so um, there was that, and I, but I, all of a sudden, in her telling me that story, which now I can't remember the details, I felt like, oh, my mom had a youth and an interiority in that youth yeah. that informs who she is now. Like, that little girl still exists inside, not, not little girl, you know, that teenager. A younger woman, yeah. Still lives inside my mom. And we're all just like a matryoshka, you know, Russian doll of our different selves that we've accumulated and the way, the experiences we've had. And it was a really interesting moment in my sort of development of feminine consciousness. At the time, I did not think of myself as a woman, but I'd never thought of my mother as uh, 
a young person having a, a romantically and possibly sexually sort of tense mm-hmm. interaction like one mm-hmm. you might see in a movie. And it was this movie in particular. And I really think it's a beautiful way of looking at um, how men and women, even in a situation where the cards are, or rather the dice are weighted in favor of them hooking up, don't have to. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a right. movie about self-restraint and self-understanding because even though they don't right. discuss it, both of them pretty quickly realize they don't want to sleep with each other. And, you know, there's like a key scene where Bill Murray like carries her back to her apartment to her hotel room and lays her in bed and then like pats her a little bit on the hand and then just gets up and leaves. And we linger on that shot of him leaving because we're supposed to see that like this was a chance. He could have done something untoward. And not only did he not do it, it wasn't even that big a battle for him. Like, that's why it's such an interesting and compelling Bill Murray yes. performance. You don't see him struggling and going like, ah, oh, should I, you know, try and make a move on this semi-conscious girl who's really hot? <sighs> he doesn't debate yeah. that. He just, maybe the thought occurs to him, like, what if I kissed her? But he doesn't express any of that. We don't see any of that on his face. He just gets do, up like, and leaves. When they kind of weirdly kiss on the mouth in the elevator, like, it feels just strange and not sexual right and neither of them likes it spark yeah no neither of them is like it's an accident Mm. like they're both going for the cheek and they end up hitting on the lip and it's just sort of awkward because that's not the nature of their intimacy you know that's that's something that i i imagine if this podcast keeps going i'm going to harp on a lot which is normalize male female friendship (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, straight male or at least woman-attracted male and male-attracted female. No, I mean, the reason we're recording right at this very second is I texted you and said one of my best guy friends is coming to town. He asked if he could crash with me and I'm going to spend all afternoon and, and, you know, he's going to stay here and it's going to be awesome. Um, It's beautiful. It's a great thing. And there's there's so little template for that. But this movie kind of is one. No, and I'm really glad that you brought up, like, your mom having this connection to the movie because what I was going to say, and I think it, and I still feel this way, but I really appreciate you giving me that insight because it does, it does help me have a deeper understanding of like the ways this movie can, you know, remind people of different parts of their lives and stuff. I do think that in terms of like the structure of our podcast and girlhood, that this is the least feminine movie Coppola made Totally. It's not really about womanhood per se. Like it's not, womanhood is not the object of its exploration. And I think because of that, it is her most celebrated in terms of, you know, traditional award giving. (laughs) And I, because I think Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. And I was actually watching, I want to give a shout out to this YouTuber because I just really love her work. Um, And I rewatched a video she made about Coppola. um, And the title of it is The Politics of Pretty, I believe. And the YouTuber Uh, is named... Who's... uh, Her name is Broey Deschanel, which is a great... Great name. um, Great great name. name. And she actually has a podcast as well. But she did a video about... And she focused on Marie Antoinette and the beguiled and virgin suicides, I believe. Mm. Um, But she was basically saying that Coppola's films... You know, Coppola was making movies about girlhood before we had like Greta Gerwig and and all of these other people kind of out here making big movies about the experience or even movies like Edge of Seventeen, um, yeah. stuff like that. And so 
she was doing that really early. And so people viewed stuff like Marie Antoinette or even Virgin Suicides, which is pretty dark and heavy. Yeah, they Virgin were Suicides, more, yeah. They were viewed a little more frivolously because it's like, well, it's about, you know, women or whatever. And right. Lost in Translation was the one that got her taken the most seriously and got her onto the map as a real kind of established auteur filmmaker. Right. And I do think the movie focuses so much more on Bob's experience than Charlotte's. Because you start the movie with him and you end it with him. And like, I think you see more of his internal journey than hers. But I'm really, really glad that you brought up that your mom watched that movie and went, oh my God, I'm seeing myself in this. Because I watch it and I don't see myself in it. But the fact that that's possible, no, I feel well, like now I, that's and, interesting. What, yeah. what, 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 what bridges or what doesn't bridge that gap? Like, where is that I th- gap? I think it's just that I really, I, I think Charlotte is not as fully realized of a character as Bob. For me, I just I watch her and I see. No, you're. I, right. I think parts, you're right. I yeah. think you are right. Yes. And I see parts of you know I've. I've lived alone in a foreign country during the onset of COVID and during lockdowns. And I have been that in that sort of mental isolation of like, this is a culture where I don't speak the language and I don't really fit in and I feel kind of unmoored. So I think this was the first time I've watched it since I had that experience. And so that I have oh, yeah. like, that little bit of connection for sure. But I do just think like this is her, uh, Coppola's most masculine film because I really think it centers Bob. And None of this is to say I don't like Lost in Translation. I think it's a phenomenal movie. And I was really re-watching it. I was like, what a quiet, introspective, beautiful movie about human yeah. connection and the forms that it can take. And I think that this is really just a stunning work. But then watching Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette, I was like, this is like the teenage girlhood experience that like, I'm <laughs> connecting to. Like, not obviously not the darker parts of Virgin Suicides, but like when they go to the school dance with all the boys, like, or like, the you know, the way that they kind of like revel in like being younger girls, the four sisters after Cecilia, you know, takes her life at the start of the film. Right. Um, and then Marie Antoinette, we can get into a little bit, but I mean, that movie is fascinating because it's a, it's a, biopic that's not meant to be a biopic it's more of a character study of like this was a young girl she was a very right she was about right. a young girl who was you know, put yeah put into this weird social situation yeah but so i i think lost in translation is a phenomenal film and i think that both johansson and murray are just doing incredible work in this film mm-hmm. and that like they have such a believable connection and i really love their their chemistry and lack of chemistry on screen as we can right discuss. But I, I do think that it is her most masculine film. And so it, it's so interesting to stack it against the movies that are so directly about being a right, girl Right, about in femininity. But that's the yeah. thing is like, I just watched right before this podcast to prepare. Mm-hmm. I watched Marie Antoinette for the first time. I hadn't seen it in theaters. It didn't seem appealing to me. And I will confess that having watched it, I think I was right. I, I, I have respect for it. Yeah. It's a fascinating movie in a lot of ways, and it's very pretty. But I found the sort of direct confrontation of girlhood and womanhood there um, alienating because it was so foreign to anything that, I mean, obviously anything I experienced because I wasn't considered mm-hmm. a girl at the time, but mm-hmm. also any of my female friends. Now, maybe that's just me thinking nobody told me they related to Marie Antoinette or that well, they I mean, related to having to have relate? like... <laughs> I right. know, having ladies of, in waiting coming right, to dress right. them every morning. But I couldn't quite get what interesting things it was having to say about womanhood and girlhood. So I'm now I was only a one viewing 
mm. opinion that I just gave you. But what what do you make of Marie Antoinette in terms of its statements about womanhood and girlhood? If we may jump to that, I'm just curious. Absolutely. So I think that I, I rewatched it last night, um, and it had been a really long time since I'd seen it, so it was really nice to revisit it. First of all, I think like Kirsten Dunst is just such an Oh, she's great. I mean, actor. none of the performances yeah. do I have anything resembling a problem. Oh, no, no, no. And also the Everybody's cast of that movie is wild. Great. I mean, you've got an early Rose Byrne doing her You've thing. got an early Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy's yeah. in it for like three it's seconds. Unreal. It's amazing. Um, I realized that um, Shirley Henderson, who is in the Bridget Jones films and plays Moaning Myrtle in Harry Potter, is a lady in waiting alongside Molly freaking Shannon. Molly Shannon, who is perfect. Like, unreal. It's The cast is just so good. But yes. I... Let me also, like, explain a little bit of my context with, like, the figure of Marie Antoinette. Oh, okay. We got some lore and some history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I love, like, when I was a kid, we've talked about Dear America Diaries very briefly on this podcast before, and they had a kind of spinoff series. It was a series of books. So the originals were, like, fictional girls in historical situations, like a girl who was on the Titanic when it sank, a girl who lived in the North in the Civil War, stuff like that. Right. And they did fictionalized ones of young royals and they did one of Marie Antoinette that I read oh. a bunch of times. And I remember my favorites were, I loved the Cleopatra one, I loved the Marie Antoinette one and I loved the Elizabeth I one. And it was all when they were about like 12, 13, 14. Sure. Um, and so for Marie Antoinette, it did involve like her betrothal to Louis the Sixteenth and the kind of subsequent yeah. marriage. Obviously the book stayed away from the fact that like, <laughs> I don't want to get too into the weeds with like Louis the Sixteenth's dicks his dick problems, but he had some really weird dick Serious problems. dick problems. Yeah, it was yeah, a real problem it did, for the country. It didn't really, it didn't work great. Um, no. so that was, oh, well, you know, it happens. It does. But, um, so I remember reading those when I was a kid and then I did a research project in Marie Antoinette in high school um, because I think, obviously, like, monarchies are bad and we shouldn't have them. <laughs> Looking at you, England. I'm not, I'm not here to defend monarchies. They're Yes, gross. but. But, no, I mean, in terms of a woman's uh, place in the monarchy, especially at the time where Marie Antoinette was alive. She was nothing more than an object and a pawn. She was used right. to secure an alliance um, between, you know, Austria, Austria and, and France. France. She, and I think that that's illustrated so well in the beginning of the film Marie Antoinette where like she crosses the border of the countries, I guess, or like they, it's yeah, like yeah, a symbolic yeah. border. Yeah, the frontier. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. And they take her dog away and they say, they take her beloved dog mops away. I I start, I like teared up at that. I was like, if anyone took my dog, but so, and (laughs) like they literally strip her of her clothing and put her into like her new self. And she is just being shuffled around on like a conveyor belt towards Mm. Louis the 16th. And so I think that by telling the story of like a young girl coming of age in the most heightened, like bizarre, place that is the ascent of Marie Antoinette into the monarchy then then goes into the French Revolution. Like, I mean, I just think that that is, I'm really glad Coppola made this movie. Um, And I think that it's finally, it it was not super well regarded. It was not really, it was polarizing and not a big hit when it came out. It was like, it was her follow-up to Lost in Translation and there was a lot of expectation about it. And then it, it was... There were critics who really loved it, but it it got mixed response, as I recall. And um, it was not a must-see in the way that Lost in Translation was. It's absolutely true. And like I I just pulled this up because I remember I was looking at this in preparation for this. Roger Ebert was one of the only critics in 2006 when this film came out to give it like a pretty solid review. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's an oddly 
structured review because it's 10 things that occurred to him while watching it and it's literally a numbered list. So I was like, okay, Roger. <laughs> oh, Roger. Yes. The okay. very first, I'm going to read this. The very first bullet point is this is Sofia Coppola's third film centering on the loneliness of being female and surrounded by a world that knows how to use you, but not how to value and understand you. And wow, I think that, that is. Raj. I know. I think that that is a very astute point of, of, you know, the, the experience of being a, especially a young woman, a, a teenage woman, you are, expectations are placed upon you as you get older and uh, you, you move from girlhood to womanhood and, and you're supposed to, you know, be doing these things. And especially for a, a young woman who's tr- traded, right, to a king in order to procreate, that is your job. You right. look pretty and you make babies and hopefully one of them is a boy because if not, you are in Then trouble. you were useless, yeah. Right, and and it's always blamed on you as if the right. lottery of, of genetically having a boy or a girl at birth is, you know, up to you eh, anyway. You got to blame but, somebody. Right. So I think that, I think Raj, I think Raj said it better than I can, but I do think that there is a, just like Charlotte in Lost in Translation, there's an acute loneliness to Marie Antoinette where she's surrounded yes. by people at all times, but she's constantly alone. And the scenes where she tries to seduce her husband and he's basically like, ugh, like, get away from yeah, me. Yeah, let's talk you about know, locks has, instead. Right. She has no physical... I mean, she, she has an affair in this movie, which I think is so interesting because I think history is very divided on whether or not she did. I mean, uh, she might have to, in order to produce her children. But, I, you know, I think even the loneliness of, like, she's alone in bed with her husband, the person with whom she's supposed to have this intimate, loving relationship in a fantasy world because, you know, she'd never met him and then she right. met him. But this is all to say that I do think that the... Iso- Coppola does a great job with, you know, the feelings of isolation. You think of... When you think of virgin suicides, or at least when I do, I think of Lux Lisbon sitting on the roof by herself smoking a cigarette while the boys in the mm. neighborhood observe her in her in her gilded cage of like this religious family who won't let her, you know, who trap her and don't want her to do anything. Um, and I think that the gilded cage, you know, you have Charlotte in Lost in Translation, who's also very privileged. She went to Yale. She's staying. Sure. She's staying with her a, rich photographer husband. In a very high-end hotel in Tokyo. Yes. Like, her every whim will be catered to should she wish. And then you have Correct. Marie Antoinette, um, who obviously is a queen. She has a coterie of ladies at her service. But mm. all of these people are alone. And they're alone in their femininity and they're alone in their girlhood because they don't have a true connection to express that. And yeah. maybe Lost in Translation is about her finding that, but he's also a totally different person. So Yes, it, yes. And it's not, it's not zeroed it. in on her in the right. way that the other ones are. Right. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of the larger metaphor of just sort of when you become a young mm-hmm. woman, even if you're not being forced to observe court standards, there are right. all these ideas about what a woman is supposed to be and what you specifically within your family or your social circle are supposed to be and that abruptly that you just have to deal with. Thrown into sexuality as soon as they yeah, hit well, a that certain too, age. Yes. I mean, how many like websites were there counting down to when famous actresses turned eighteen? Oh, and it would Christ! Be, I you forgot know, about all that. Yeah, there was one yeah, for right. Emma Watson. Yeah. For Emma fact. Watson, oh, I, that was the yeah, most famous was, one. That's what I remember. I think it was that and the Olsen twins. I remember were like the really, really famous ones. And it's so gross, and it's so the reprehensible man. that anybody would make that. Uh, men yeah. should they be illegal? Our next topic. But like, <laughs> I watched Marie Antoinette last night, and I was so struck by just the loneliness of the film, where she is surrounded by opulence and yet she has nothing she has no power she has no influence and she's also not 
really aware of anything because it's not her job to be aware of anything. It is her. Is that job. how you felt when you were when you were a, like teenager? Into I your certainly early 20s? didn't feel like I had any power. I mean, right. how many hours did I spend in dudes' basements watching them play Guitar Hero? Like, right. I was just kind of like, well, I'll do. I'll do what the boys want because then right. I'll seem cool and then maybe they'll have crushes on me. And yeah, I mean, right. it's also just you go on this kind of whirlwind where you're like, I was a kid and now I'm now I'm 18 and I'm a, I'm a grown up and I'm expected to like do grown up things and be out in the world. And I mean, I certainly didn't feel the level of isolation that I think Coppola exhibits in her films, but it is a it's a very weird mental time to be a girl yeah. because you're kind of grappling with a lot of just expectations of you, the way that men regards you changes, you know, family members start asking, you know, so do you have someone special? And, you know, the expectations right. of what you're supposed to be doing change. It's a weird time. And That's I think very that, interesting. So it's almost think, like yeah. every woman has to enter the court at some point, you know? I mean, yeah. like, Whatever we call them is. debutante balls for a reason because like, yeah. yeah, you're sort of debuting into this new world yes. that you've entered even if you're not a royal. And what's interesting is, you know, the class background is, of course, something you have to think about while you're watching it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah, she she has this gilded cage. And I'm sure even for you, like, you didn't have the royal treatment, but both of us, like, are in positions of privilege where yeah. other people might look at our, you know, adolescence and go, well, that's completely and be like, what do you have to complain to about? Right. What do right. you have to complain about? But it's but what you're saying is there's a universal girlhood experience there, a young womanhood mm -hmm. experience, that if you take away the class, if you sort of strip away the yes. pretty veneer of the class background and the specifics of what's expected of her, it's all very familiar. Right. Because you it's like, have you changed as a person? Not necessarily. Has the way the world sees you changed? Right. Yes. And then when and you start I mean, the, the the thing that's really fascinating is she sort of at first she is very resistant to being fancy. Mm -hmm. And then she starts being fancy and like, oh, how terrible. She's too fancy now. Right, you know? right. Where it's like, well, what do you want? <laughs> it's like That's the Barbie what, monologue where you're like, what no, do you want from this it woman? Is. What do you, we have to tie ourselves into knots all the time to be everything everywhere all at once. Like it is so tiring. Right. And that's such, that is the female contradiction is like, you have to be, this, but not that, and that, but not this. And I think that, you know, obviously using Marie Antoinette was always going to be a divisive way of showing, of telling oh, that sure. female story. But I am, I think that it was the right choice. And I think that it's a really good project. I think that we discussed it wasn't super popular when it came out. And I know that there's been kind of a re- reevaluation of it recently. Where oh, has there? Like, I'm so out of yeah, touch with the cultural like, reevaluation ecosystem. Seen, I've seen like more people talking about it on the internet and stuff like that, which is yeah. nice because I'm just like, this movie does deserve to be investigated it and on its own merit because I think that it's a well-made movie with a lot to say. And I think that Coppola is nothing if not an ambitious filmmaker, but her, her uh, ability to produce introspection, even in something as colorful and loud as the French court, should not be overlooked because this is a very introspective film. It is, although I felt like maybe I didn't, maybe I wasn't engaging with it in the right way, but I felt like I didn't have as deep a sense of who she was as I wanted to. Like there's so little dialogue in the movie and Kiki, 
does the lion's share of the work then at that point? There's very she's, little written that tells you about right. Marie Antoinette. Well, the scene it's where all she's in standing the way she holds herself. Completely naked while she's waiting to be dressed by the correct person in her bedchamber. Right. There's like 40 people in there. And she's right. just like, I'm nude. And like and the right person has to pick up this shirt. And right. it's going to take 15 minutes for someone to put right. clothes on me. Right. Like, I mean, and and you brought up the Barbie monologue. I mean, this is, she's a doll. She's a plastic right. doll to be That's dressed right. and paraded. You know, she's, and I think that there, I think that the distance you, that you're feeling with her is maybe a little bit purposeful in that like. That's probably deliberate. She is kind level, of a yeah. symbol, right? I mean, Marie Antoinette is also like, the bottom line is that this is a historical figure who was thrust into a position of precarious power at a really, yeah. really uncertain time in French history who, did she comport herself perfectly? No. Did she really know any better? Probably not. Like That's the thing is like, it's really interesting how they, uh, how they, how Coppola mm-hmm. um, makes the French Revolution basically an afterthought in the movie. Like yeah. you're expecting with a movie named Marie Antoinette that you're going to see uh, a lot of uh, revolutionary violence and anxiety. But that's not what she's anxious about most of the movie. Mm-mm. It's not really something that's Mm-mm. pressing on her. So when the Bastille gets stormed and when the crowds show up- Which is the very end of the movie. That's what I'm saying. It's like barely yeah. the, it's barely in the movie. Very much in the last like 15 minutes, you get this, this little brief mm-hmm. summary of the very beginning of the French Revolution that's deeply incomplete. But that's the point. It's not a movie about the French Revolution. Exactly. Because Marie Antoinette didn't know- There are plenty of any, movies. Right. There's plenty <laughs> of movies about, about that, but that. also like Marie Antoinette didn't know shit about the revolution. It's not like Marie Antoinette was sitting around going like, well, I wonder right. what the Jacobin are thinking. You know, I but mean, it's also, she was living I in think, this bubble. I also think that uh, only in, briefly including the storming of the, of the Bastille and the French Revolution is so important because it all we, all most people know about Marie Antoinette is like, let them eat cake. She got guillotined, right? Right. Like that's what defines her. Whereas this movie is about like, well, what was her life like before that? And right. I think that that's not, I mean, I know a little more about that because I just really like history and stuff like that. Like, sure, I don't, yeah. I'm not a big history buff, but when I fixate on something, I kind of go all in on it. And I also want to give a shout out to a podcast that I really like called Noble Blood hosted by Dana Schwartz. And her first ever episode was about Marie Antoinette. And obviously Coppola probably chose not to include some of the more gruesome details, which one of which was that like, they chopped off the head of Marie Antoinette's like BFF. I forget her name. Mm. And they brought her head to a hairdresser and had her like done up, put it on a stake and paraded it outside of Marie Antoinette's prison window to be like, see? This is what's your, coming for here's you. Here's your buddy. Yeah. So like, that's hey. the really, yeah, that's the heavy stuff. But I think, I think that, you know, it, it, it makes me think of, um, I'm my other big history thing. I always say this is my drunk history topic is Henry VIII's six wives. Like I can, I can. <laughs> yeah, you can run through yeah. them. Yeah. And I got to see the musical Six, which I loved in London in 2022. And sure. uh, that the whole conceit of that musical is that there's so much more than the divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived rhyme that they they were six human beings distilled down to just accessories to Henry VIII. And I think right. that that's a little bit what Coppola is trying to do with Marie Antoinette as well as be like she was a kid traded to a man and then stuck in this. And here's what her life was like before the guillotine, before the stuff that you, you know, have peripherally heard about this person. But what's interesting is I kept thinking, I wonder how much of this is me projecting because we're in this precarious situation as a country right now Mm -hmm. and how much this was deliberate. But I can't help but think this is a movie about late stage America. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very much 
You don't make a movie about Marie Antoinette if you're not thinking about income inequality and the the tipping points right. that can cause a system to collapse uh, or be crushed by outside forces. And, you know, I can't help but think that this is, while I was watching it, this is a movie that really looks at how beauty, while seductive, can often just be... It, 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 I mean, I, I sound so boring saying this, but it's about no. the illusory nature of, you know, French macarons and gold, yeah. gold-plated yeah. mirrors. You well, know, it's about you know, how at about- the end of the day, that's not something that she she found temporal pleasure in it. But when she says goodbye to all of Versailles at the end, you see, you know, and has her head against yeah. the window of the carriage, you get the sense that she's not too heartbroken about losing all of these trappings that she um, was unfamiliar with at the beginning of her time in Versailles and leaves going, well, goodbye to all that. You know, there isn't her going, oh no, what will I do without my precious handmaidens? And what, you know, she's sad, but she's not like, I can't live without this. She wouldn't live without it, but you can get the sense that like, she could envision a life in exile Absolutely. And she didn't get to have one, but you can right. see her thinking, I can live C- without Almost this. come to peace with it, right. So two things that I, I want to bring up, because you brought up, you know, how this could be viewed in the... Uh, Fran Drescher, during one of her, you know, barn burner speeches when sag after recently went on strike, literally said, like, at some point, the peasants stormed the gates of Versailles. Yeah, <laughs> she they do. Invoked, she invoked that while talking about the ongoing... Yeah, yeah I'm not surprised. I mean, that, it's a, and sag after right. But you know what else is about the illusion of beauty? It's, um, the Virgin Suicides, <laughs> which I really, really want to bring up. Um, because I saw it a long time ago, and I remember yeah. very little about it. I saw it. That actually might have been the first Coppola I saw, now that I think about it. I saw it at some point after it came out. So tell tell me what, remind me what's good about it, because I can't remember. <laughs> I saw it so long well, ago. Well, so it's it's adapted from a book by Jeffrey uh, Eugenides. 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 Yeah. Thank you. And his book is so interesting in a way that I have a little bit of an issue with. It's a great book. He's a great author. But it is a story about young girls told entirely from a male perspective, mm. which is, you know, it, it, yeah, the I point mean, it's of not like that's a crime necessarily, but no, it, it, but you're I'm on also shaky like, ground. Yeah, because it's, it's very, you know, it, you don't get any introspection of the Lisbon sisters. Ah, uh, really? That's very interesting. No, they don't get any point of view chapters. You see them through the eyes of the neighborhood boys. And right. Coppola uses the same, you know, narrative framework in the film and that the boys provide the narration. However, because she There's a is, lot of interiority. Yeah, you see exactly. these girls. She, she gives more, much more interiority to, oh. to Bonnie, to Therese, to Lux, and to um, Mary. Those are the four surviving sisters after Cecilia takes her life at the start of the film. Right, um, right. And so then you have the other four. And obviously they all also die by suicide, hence the title. But like... The title, yes. It, it is so much more of an introspective movie about these girls, you know, trying to explore the bounds of their girlhood, of their sexuality, of their freedom outside of the constraints of their extremely strict religious family. Um, and Coppola manages to take the neighborhood boys aspect and she gives us much more, like you said, much more introspection and interiority of the characters. And I think that Lux is probably the character who gets the most uh, exploration because she is the one who 
in her acts of rebellion, she goes up on the roof and invites, you know, men and boys over and has sex with them on the roof and then sits out there like chain smoking. And so it's this like performative sexual act that like the neighborhood boys just kind of keep in on. And, you know, in the book, basically the thing is like these girls were a mystery to us. We don't understand what happened or, uh. or why or why they did what they did or like what they what what could we have done almost. Whereas in the right. movie, which I rewatched the other night, I think that there's a really staggering sense of finality. Like it was always going to happen this way. Like these girls had this interior struggle and it was just not possible for them to overcome it because they didn't mm. have the tools and they didn't have the freedom and they didn't have the breathing room because right. their parents wanted them to be, and I say this word again, dolls. They did not want them to be real right. people with, with you know, full sexual, spiritual, emotional lives. They wanted them to be pretty little dolls in their p- pretty little white dresses. And sure. so- Why did I you mean, like Lux so much? Why was Lux <laughs> such a gravitational character for you that you named your dog after her? Well, I partly named my dog after her because I thought that the name was really cool, but I was like, I it could is never a cool name. name. A, I could never name a daughter that because like bad juju, but I was like, a dog yeah. is safe. <laughs> um, Dogs but, less prone to suicide. Yes, yes. Right. And the other names are like Bonnie. I was like, I'm not going to, no offense to Bonnie's yeah, of the world. Not, I'm not naming no. my dog Bonnie. Um, but I mean, especially in the film, again, we come back to Kirsten Dunst. Too, Kiki, just yes. Outstandingly good in this film. She just like, she, all she has to do is take a drag of a cigarette and look at the camera and you're like, oh, yes. I want to give you a hug. Like, you just feel everything for her in that moment because she, Kirsten Dunst plays, like, um, just that broken soul kind of thing so well. Like, mm. like there's just broken something but beautiful. fractured. Yes, there's something so fractured inside of her and you just, yeah. you want to reach out a hand. Like, I mean, she even brought that a little bit to Power of the Dog in one of her recent high-profile mm. performances. But I just... I think that Lux is very centered, again, because it's Kirsten Dunst and she's probably the biggest name of the young girls in the film. But she's centered because she has the biggest journey of any of them and that she's the one, you know, risking or flaunting the rules of her parents' household, basically, to have these trysts with these men on the roof of her house. Right. Um, and so I think that she is the one, she's the viewpoint at which we look through, look at the Lisbon sisters in terms of like right. the way that they are trapped in their gilded cage, in their perfect little suburban home where what do you have to be upset about? And it's that they have no room to explore who they right. are. It's like material comfort is not what's going to actually, that alone right. cannot create a free person or right. a, a whole person or a stable person. You have to you have get, some degree yeah. of freedom to express yourself and to go off the path that was set for you. And you get the sense almost the Lisbon girls were like doomed from the start, I think, in the movie. Like there just was no, right. there was no path for them to have, you know, that freedom that you just mentioned. And Virgin Suicides is a difficult movie and it's a sad movie and it's a heartbreaking yeah. movie, but it has these moments. I know, I had like, to rewatch, I, I, I was going to either rewatch it or watch Marie Antoinette for the first time. And I was like, I know there might be a beheading at the end of Marie yeah. Antoinette, but there's going to be less self-murder. Right. So I think I'm going to Exactly, skip exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll put a content warning at the front of this episode for sure. But like, might as well, because it's, yeah. it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy topic. And obviously, you know, it's, it's hard to discuss because it's, this is right. And that a, was the scandal of the movie issue. at the time. Yeah. Right. And the movie was kind of scandalous at the time, only mildly, but like for the reason that the suicides in the book and the movie are scandalous, which is just, I mean, the title alone is so provocative. Yeah. yeah. And for, for a young woman like Coppola, who had a bad reputation, thanks to the Godfather part three 
to and take the on a, of it all. Right. Right. The nep- well, that was the point of it. Was like she was right. only in that because she was a nepo baby. So it was like, oh great, some nepo baby's making a movie. And mm-hmm. it, it's very it's a good movie. <laughs> it's like yeah. and but it was very provocative to pick something with that title and with that content. Mm-hmm. And I really admire her for just jumping head first into one of the Same. hardest things to depict in fiction, which is suicide. And then do it five yeah. times over in one movie. And to, like I said, take a, a book that is told from a male framework and still right. make it an, an incredibly feminine movie about girlhood. You know, like, yeah. again, like the scenes, the scenes where I mean, one of the saddest moments of the movie is when Lux uh, sleeps with, I keep expecting my dog to like pop up like, hey, are you talking about <laughs> <to laughs> <me?" laughs> um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, it's the moment where she sleeps with um, Josh Hartnett's character, Trip Fontaine, on the football field and she wakes up and he's gone. Because even to the boys who show them this tenderness and love, they don't mean anything. You right. know, he, she's 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 there to be used by him and when, when it's over, he just leaves her alone in a football field. It's it's yeah. so heartbreaking. It's so crushing. And, and I think that yeah, I think you're right. I think Coppola was really brave to take this project on. And I and I think that she not only did, did the book justice, but I think that she found more more female depth in it than there previously was. Than there was. And I greatly now, admire her for that. I want to I want to say, you know, before in our remaining couple of minutes, I want to yeah. talk about the bling ring very briefly because Please. I feel like of all of Coppola's movies, I am seen most in the bling ring for one reason, which is I too have made efforts to contact Nancy Jo Sales and ask her questions. <laughs> I was so hoping you'd bring and that up. And have been rebuffed. I've been rebuffed three times I, by Nancy yeah. Jo. There have been three Actually, stories I I've done. Really? You have? No kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, I she just, reported I, that I wore Louboutins to court and I didn't. And I didn't. Exactly. Like, oh that's God. the thing. It's like, <laughs> Nancy Jo, it's the funniest thing to me. I wrote about God. Vince McMahon. I wrote a biography mm-hmm. of Vince McMahon, which she had written a cover story for New York Magazine that's amazing about New York yeah. Vince McMahon in 1998. She wrote about the prep school gangsters, and I was profiling mm-hmm. a prep school gangster who had grown up. And oh now I'm writing about Beck, and she had written about these uh, this. Oh, you story literally that have tried to. I was kidding. I was. I was no, never, no, never I am not joking. <laughs> no, Nina, Nina, this was a I, very, very true story. In wow. three separate occasions, I've reached out to Nancy Joe because she has her email address on her website. So I just emailed yeah. her all three times. And I was like, hey, you know, can we chat about this topic? Because you did such a, an amazing job and years ago. And you were rebuffed. Every time she very politely, very politely, she's never rude. She's always just like, oh, my notes aren't around or, oh, that was a long time ago. And then finally with the Beck one, I emailed her and she wrote back and just said, I don't do those kinds of interviews. And I went to my spouse and I said, what is she talking about? And she's like, honey, you won't stop bothering her. She's tr- <laughs> she's saying she doesn't do interviews about her articles. She's categorically saying stop right. contacting me. Okay, so the so reason I, I very much relate. No, yeah. I very much relate to the real person and Emma Watson on the phone saying, Nancy Joe. <laughs> this like that's that's me. I have that's me trying to contact Nancy Joe Sales. I've watched the clip of Alexis, real Alexis Nyers doing that. I'm going to say a hundred oh. plus thousand times. It's amazing. 
it is the funniest thing I've ever like where she will stop in the middle and be like, mom, shut up. And like, yeah. then just try to yeah. do it again. It's, I mean, it's art. It should be in the Louvre. Like just it's really something. It I know Bling Ring is not her best movie, but there are some moments in that that are truly astounding. Mainly just because the original and story is so astounding. The story is wild. Like, I mean, it's just, it's so crazy. And I mean, just the, the iconic moment of, I want to rob, like with the cigarette hanging limply behind, between yes, Emma Watson's fingers. Yes. Or at the end when she's like, I could be the president one day. Like, she's really good in that movie. And I I love Emma Watson's, like, whole deal. I don't always think that she delivers the strongest performances in any given project, but I think that's easily Can't her Can't win them work. all. Yeah. She's great um, in that movie. That's the thing. Is like, here's maybe, maybe one note we can sort of wrap this up with yeah, yeah, yeah. is <laughs> no matter what you think about the content of her movies vis-a-vis girlhood, Coppola mm-hmm. is a great director for actresses. Like, the actresses in her movies thrive on the screen. What are you going to say? I, you, you held your finger no, up. I, I did because the second half of that Roger Ebert quote that I read to you earlier, it shows Coppola <gasps> what, what once is it? again what is able... It? It shows Coppola once again able to draw notes from actresses who are rarely required to sound them. Yes! Yes! Oh, I love Roger Ebert. I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast, but he's the reason I write journalism. I grew up in Chicago and reading every Friday, the highlight of my mornings uh, in the the week was Friday because I could read his new movie reviews in the Chicago Sun-Times and his home paper. And he, yeah. So anyway, thank you for exposing me to that, those two quotes because I was not familiar with them. But he's completely right. He's completely right. And I just, I think that like, he and you have just honed in on the fact that Coppola understands the feminine experience so intrinsically that she's able to take an actress like to really draw that inner monologue out without, as you mentioned, necessarily saying a word. Right, that's the thing. Very often these characters don't speak their minds mm-hmm. and very deliberately don't speak their minds because either yes. it's dangerous or they don't feel like exposing themselves like that. Yes. So yes. you have all these female characters who, like the boys in the Eugenides novel, look at these female characters and go, I don't know what's going on. But you, the mm-hmm. viewer, if you're willing yeah. to step up and meet Coppola and these actresses halfway and like really engage with their you're facial expressions, rewarded. with yeah. their little hand movements, what they're wearing, stuff that's nonverbal. Mm-hmm then you find real riches. Like, these are really interesting female characters. Exactly. Sofia Coppola, great director. I love her. Sign off. Yeah, exactly. We salute you. We salute you, Sofia Coppola. This was was a good episode. I had a good conversation here. It was a great episode. Yeah. So, uh, Josie, where can people learn more about you and your work and and who you are? Yes, they can find me at josie.zone. That's J-O-S-I-E dot Z-O-N-E. E. That is the World Wide Web. That's a URL. I should have specified that. Uh, and uh, you can find me on Blue Sky if you use Blue Sky um, at uh, the exact same username, Josie.zone. I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm Nina Starner on Blue Sky. And I'm also still Nina Starner on the artist formerly known as Twitter. Wow. I, you know, every week I feel like I get a little me. check-in on how bad <laughs> things are on Twitter because you're still there. Yeah, I'm still there. I, I, they will be playing Semisonic's Closing Time by the time I <laughs> They'll be playing that Kenny G song and that they play in China whenever they have to close <laughs> the, the mall, yeah. you know? They will sound, that will soundtrack my exit. But 
Thanks for listening, everybody. This was a really Thanks, fun episode. Thanks, everybody. Go watch. Oh, and Sophia sorry we Coppola didn't put movies. out an episode last week. Sorry, we forgot to say that. Sorry we didn't put out oh, an yeah. episode last week. My dog, my dog. We're talking so much about dogs. <laughs> my cat, my cat went missing and uh, is back now. So one, Yay. you know, tra- things may get lost in translation, but we did not lose our cat. So anyway, thank you so much, and we will be back next week. Goodbye. <laughs> 